Welcome to the Vision Church Podcast. We're so thankful that you're taking some time today to listen. We pray that this week's message challenges you to press in deeper with your pursuit of Christ. Our mission at Vision Church is to go and make disciples. You can help us in this mission by rating this podcast and sharing it with the world via social media. We want to reach the lost by raising up the found. Thank you again for tuning in today and enjoy the message. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me this morning to Leviticus chapter 14. And yes, I did not stutter, Leviticus chapter 14. When was the last time you heard a sermon on Leviticus? Probably been a while, probably will be a while before you hear another one. Let's take a minute real quick to welcome our live stream audience right now. Come on, somebody, and make some noise. Welcome to Vision Church in Uptown, South End and Westover Hills. My name is Tyson Coughlin. I'm the pastor here at Vision Church. And uh, it's good to be back. I've been out for the last three weeks. And, uh, you know, we are in great hands here as a church. Uh, Pastor Brett, MJ Maldonado, and Rick Parsons did a wonderful job. Can we give them some appreciation? We love you guys. Thank you so much. Got a great group of preachers in the house. I was out for the last three weeks because we have a new addition to the Vision Church family. And in my opinion, might just be the cutest one. I got a picture to show you. That's my guy right there. Uh, His name is Luca David Coughlin. And finally, I have a baby that looks a little bit like me. Because when I show up at Harris Teeter with Pierce, people think I kidnapped somebody. He's blind and don't look anything like me. I'm like, I promise he's mine. All right, I finally got one with some black hair. Hopefully it hangs in there, but we'll see. All right. <laughs> but we're excited. And Christina is doing wonderful. And that's a strong woman, a mighty woman. Love for her. Uh, everybody's healthy. Thank you, Jesus, for your prayers, all of you that uh, were praying. Uh, also want to give you a quick update. Uh, We've been setting a goal to raise $1 million for our Independence Campus. Our goal is to raise $1 million by May 2023. I'm pleased to tell you that we have raised $522,000. Come on, somebody. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. And... uh, I want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you to every one of you for your generosity, everyone that's given. Thank you so much for your generosity, your sacrificial giving. Every dollar that you have given will go to transforming that space so that lives will be transformed in it. And it will be a worthy investment. People are going to come to Christ all over this city. Truly, they will. Um, We still have $477,000 to go. So if you want to write that check today, we will not stop you. Uh, You can give anytime at your convenience online at visionchurch.com and uh, anytime between now and May. Uh, Also, today's Baptism Sunday, Pastor Brett mentioned that we have 33 people signed up to go public with their faith in the waters of baptism. Come on, somebody. That's a big deal. Yeah. That's, uh, I believe 110 people will have been baptized this year at Vision Church. Got a lot more saved than baptized, but that's not unusual. Uh, But anyway, Leviticus chapter 14, beginning in verse 33, the name of today's message is called the plague in the house. Look at your neighbor, say there's a plague in the house. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when you have come into the land of Canaan, which I give to you as a possession, I put the leprous plague in a house in the land of your possession. And he who owns the house comes and tells the priest saying, it seems to me that there's some plague in the house. Then the priest 
shall command that they empty the house before the priest goes into it to examine the plague. And all that is in the house may not be made unclean. And afterward, the priest shall go in to examine the house and he shall examine the plague. And indeed, if the plague is on the walls of the house ingrained in streaks of greenish or reddish, which appear to be deep in the wall, then the priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house and shut up the house for seven days. And the priest shall come again on the seventh day and look. And indeed, if the plague has spread on the walls of the house, then the priest shall command that they take away the stones in which is the plague and they shall cast them into an unclean place outside of the city. Then he shall cause the house to be scraped inside all around and the dust that they scrape off shall pour out in an unclean place outside the city. Verse 42, and they shall take other stones and put them in the place of those stones and he shall take other mortar and plaster the house. Pray with me now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Leviticus. Even though we skip over it, we thank you, Lord, for it because we believe it's divinely inspired. And I pray that you would be strong in my weakness and bring life and courage and strength to your people today. We refuse to go through the motions of religious monotony and routines of men. But today, Lord, we lean into your word, change our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. I want to give you a little background into what's happening here in the book of Leviticus. Uh, first of all, chapter 14 is a book about the law of leprosy. The first half of chapter 14 talks about how do you address somebody who has been stricken with leprosy. And the back half of chapter 14 talks about how do you deal with a house? How do you remediate leprosy uh, from a house? Uh, so this is very, you know, interesting reading. It's a very obscure passage, but I truly believe that God has an on-time word for you and I today, and I believe it's alive and going to speak to us like he always does. A little more context here. This word is given to Moses and Aaron as they're leading the Israelites through the Exodus on their way to the promised land. You remember the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. God rose up a deliverer named Moses. He set them free. And now they are wandering on the wilderness desert of Sinai on their way to the promised land. And they're, they're mobile here. So they're living in tents. An entire generation grew up living in a tent, sand blowing all over the place in their mouth and their hair all over the place. They were frustrated, okay? And they were anxiously awaiting the occupation of the promise. Every day, every morning, the Israelites dreamed of what life would be like on the other side of the Jordan. They had great anticipation of what it would be like to live in the land promised to their ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. And for one of the main reasons is that they would no longer be in a tent. They would now have some permanency in their life. And as they uh, envision their future in the promised land, God just rains on their parade and just ruins their day. And God speaks to Moses and Aaron and he says, now you tell the Israelites that when they get into the promised land, yeah, they're going to have a house, but it's going to have a plague in it. How many of you know that is not what the Israelites wanted to hear? That is not how they envisioned this starting, but God reigns on their parade right there. And you got to feel the moment 
that God is telling them even the promised land is going to come with problems. All right. And so that's a little bit of the backdrop here today. The first point that I want to draw out of this is simply this. The Israelites were the only ones afflicted by the plague. Only the Israelites. Scripture gives us no indication that any of the Gentiles or Canaanites, nobody else was impacted by this leprous plague other than the people of God, the Hebrews, all right? Now, again, you gotta remember that the Israelites are the chosen people. God called them, aside from all other nations on earth, to be his children so that he could show off his glory, his power, his radiance through them. And now he tells them, you're going to go into a land, you're going to get a house, but it's going to have some mold in it. It's going to have some fungus and it's deadly, by the way. So there's going to be a plague in the house and it's only going to be affecting you, my own people. All right. This is, again, not what they had in mind when they thought about the promise. The truth is, when you think about the Israelites in Scripture, although they may be slightly annoying and you want to slap them sometimes, you have to realize that the Israelites are a picture of you. Look at your neighbors say, the Israelites are like you. <laughs> have you ever read the Bible and you just want to slap them? You just want to say, what is wrong with y'all? Like God has delivered you. He's done so many great things and you still complain and you're negative and you're... Anybody? I guess I'm the... Y'all are more spiritual than me. Okay. But anyway, every time you get frustrated with the Israelites, just look in the mirror because really it's a picture of you. And the truth is, is that we're really no different. When we gave our life to Christ, we became a new Christian. We had a vision or a dream and an anticipation of what our Christian life would be like. And when we thought of our future in Christ, none of us planned for a plague. None of us planned for a problem. When we, got, when we gave our life to Christ, we envisioned that our life was going to be healthy, wealthy, blessed. Our life was now going to be 75 and sunny. We might even have a little halo going on. Like our life is going to be straight into the right. Things are going to be great. People are going to like me. And then you got about three days in. And you realize that even God's promises come with problems. And if we're being honest today, the Israelites had a great gap between what they envisioned the promise being and what it actually was. And the reality is many of us in our Christian life today, we're walking in the harsh reality that is so different than what we imagined our Christian life was going to be like. This is not what I had in mind, God. This is not what I had. I want, to, I want to say this to you. What if God's promise doesn't look anything like what you expected? What if God's plan for your life looks totally different from the vision you have for you? You know, in Western Christianity, consumer Christianity, we're kind of watered down over here in the Western hemisphere. And we tend to think that life is about us. We tend to think that our calling is about us. The whole world revolves around us. But I just want to, I want to caution you and I want to warn you that really your life is not about you anymore. And it's no longer about what do you want to do? What do you think about that? What's your opinion? Like, that's not what this is about. 
okay? And so many of us, though, sadly, we take this consumer mindset right into our Christian life, and we come up with all these plans. God, I'm going to be famous. I'm going to write a book. It'll be for you, though. I mean, I'll be famous for you, but I'm going to do it, and I'm going to make some commission from the books, but I'm going to do it for you, Lord. Uh, you know, and we envision that my calling is going to be great. My calling is going to be awesome. I'm going to speak to stadiums and millions of people. Nobody thinks their life or their calling is going to be mediocre or apathetic. We all envision greatness. We envision our life being happy. Tons of friends. We're doing our thing, man. But the truth is... Could it be that your vision for you came from you? And could it be that your vision for your life is not at all what God's plan for you actually is? And I would submit to you this morning that instead of us creating these elaborate dreams and elaborate plans for our life and then asking God to bless it in the aftermath, instead we should say, here am I, Lord, send me. Use me. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to say? Who do you want me to serve? Here am I, Lord. Send me. I promise you that his way is better. Look at your neighbor if you believe it and tell him his way is better. By the way, having a great vision or doing great things for God is not evil. It's not wrong. It's not a wrong thing to write a book. It's not a bad thing to be prosperous. It's not a bad thing to preach to a lot of people and be a great leader. None of those things are evil or wrong. But the question is, what is the motive behind your dream? What's the reason you want what you want? What's the reason you're envisioning all of these things? And I want to caution to you this. If love is not your motivation, then you're missing it altogether. You see... If you want to be great because you love you, you're totally missing it. The word of God tells us that we should be motivated and driven by love, a love for God and a love for people. Scripture goes on to say that if you sold all of your possessions, you gave it to the poor, but you didn't do it because you actually love them, then you did it in vain. It goes a step further to say if you die as a martyr, you give up your life for other people, but you didn't do it because you loved them, you died. In vain. Love must be the motivation behind why we do what we do for Christ. It must be our motivation for living. There's nothing wrong with these great things if they happen in your life, but there is something wrong if those great dreams are your motivation behind why you serve God. And sadly, today, many people serve God only as a means to an end. God, I serve you because I need you. I need a financial blessing. I need to get out of hell free card. Like we serve God for what he can do for us rather than just serving him because of who he is. The problem is when these dreams become our motive and our ambition. Could it be this morning that your definition of success is vastly different than God's definition of success for your life. I wanna to read to you 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse six. It's a beautiful passage. This is Samuel the high priest coming to anoint the next king of Israel. Listen to this. 
So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel walks into Jesse's house, lines up all of his sons and makes a preconceived notion that Eliab, because he's the tallest, the strongest and the best looking, he's going to be the anointed. And God rebukes him because God is saying to his servant, Samuel, your definition of success is very different from mine. You look at external factors, material things to define success, but I see the world in a totally different perspective and God does not see the world the way you and I see the world and God does not define success the way you and I define success. So instead of trying to live out these grandiose dreams to impress people, why don't we lay them at the altar today and say, even if my promise comes with problems, even if my promised land comes with some plagues and some storms, even if my life doesn't go according to my plan, I will still serve you, Lord. <clears throat> One person clapping on that. That's all right. I love you anyway. God doesn't see things the way we see them. I truly believe that in heaven, when we get there, we cross through those pearly gates through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're looking around for the, for heaven's greatest we're going to be looking for these famous preachers and teachers and the authors, but I'm going to tell you something. I believe heaven's greatest will be the servants that nobody on earth knew their name. They served faithfully in obscurity. They were faithful intercessors, prayer warriors, missionaries. I believe heaven's greatest will be unknown utterly on the earth. Why? Because God's definition of success is different than yours. See, Jesus taught the disciples that the way up in the kingdom is actually down. The disciples were arguing over who's the greatest. Peter, now you know I'm greater than you. Now shut up, Luke. No, you know I'm greater than you. Sorry, I'm not supposed to say that word, especially when they record it. Uh, anyway, you know, they're like, oh, I'm greater, I'm greater. And Jesus said, would y'all stop it? The greatest in the kingdom are the servants. His metric of success is far different than ours. So let me ask you this question this morning. What if your life and what if your promise does not go according to your plan? Will you still remain faithful? I want to tell you a story really quickly. We planted this church 10 years ago. I was 25 years old. I had no idea what I was doing. When we planted the church, I had a vision. I had a promise. I had a dream of what it would be like. And I envisioned that like on opening Sunday, people are going to be coming to the altar, crying, getting saved. Hundreds of people coming to Christ. I envisioned this thing being so powerful, so beautiful, touching the city. And instead what happened is the exact opposite. I didn't grow the church. I shrank it. I scared people, offended people. And uh, it was miserable for about four years. True. And I vividly remember four years into this church plant, having a conversation with God and saying, Lord, this is not the promise that I signed up for. This is not what I had in mind. This is a bunch of problems, but I envisioned a promise, a land that flowed with milk. God, this is not what I signed up for. I remember in my living room, four years into the church plant, I had decided, I told God I was gonna quit. That was it, I was done. And right there in that moment, I started flipping through my old Bible college notebook and I flipped this one page. We had a great teacher that day. Really, truly, he was an awesome theologian. 
but I only had one thing written on this whole page. I'm a great note taker, by the way. <laughs> Not really. But there was one thing on that page. You know what it said? Don't quit. That's all I took away from his lesson. And you know what? That's exactly what I needed in that moment. So instantly I was convicted and I told God right there in my living room, I said, okay, okay. This has not gone according to my plan, but if you've called me to pastor 50 people in obscurity for the rest of my life and nobody ever hears my story, nobody ever sees this church, it doesn't do great things in the eyes of the city of the world, I'll still say yes. And I meant it. But it took four years for God to break me because the flesh dies hard. But when God uses people supernaturally, he breaks them first. He breaks them so that they realize that any success, any fruitfulness, it's all him, not us. The apostle Paul said, I may plant the seed, Apollos may water it, but only the Lord brings increase. God has to break you of you so that he can entrust you with his plan and his purpose in your life. Sometimes, sometimes life comes with plagues. It comes with problems. But those are meant to break you into his service. I wonder, will you still say yes? I'm going to mess with your theology real quick, and I'm going to have fun doing it. <clears throat> what if the plague was part of God's plan all along? What if the plague in the house in the promise was God's plan from the beginning? Newsflash. It was. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God sent the illness. I'm not saying God orchestrated it, but I am saying that God allowed it. He allowed it for a purpose to break them. He allowed it for a purpose that he would receive glory. He does. Look through the scripture. God allows storms. He allows trouble in our life. And though we didn't account for it, it's still a part of his plan. It's meant to break us. I want you to hear me this morning. If you are in a situation right now, if you're in it, God allowed it. And if God allowed it, good will come from it. And if you don't see good yet, God's not finished. If you're in it, God allowed it. If God allowed it, good will come from it. If you don't see good yet, God is not done. Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. God's way is better. Look at your neighbor, help me preach. Say, every promise comes with problems. <laughs> the promised land came with mold and your promises will come with a plague too. All the single people that gather around, you're praying to get married. I want to get married. That's your promise. Well, good for you. I'm going to tell you right now, your promise is going to come with problems. All the married people just said, amen, preacher. <laughs> single folk, you're like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm going to marry a good one. I'm gonna, yeah, well, guess what? She's going to be broken and messed up, and so are you. <laughs> you're going to be her plague, all right? <laughs> so <laughs> just don't send me an email. Relax. Okay. But what I am trying to tell you is that every promise comes with problems. 
The reason I bring this to your attention today is because sadly, many abort their promise and many give up on their marriage, many give up on their ministry the moment that things get difficult because it's not how they envisioned it. And they had this grandiose dream of how their life was gonna play out. And the moment life gets difficult, we quit, we give up, we second guess our decision. But let me remind you that the plague was part of the plan. And if God allowed it, God, good is going to come from it, and God's not finished with you yet. Some of you are praying for babies. I prayed for two boys and I got them, but they come with problems. <laughs> I slept for two hours last night. That's a problem. <laughs> One of them likes to punch me and his brother. Babies, they, the blessings come with problems, okay? Just, just FYI, news, public service announcement. Some of you want to start a business. You're an entrepreneur, you're a starter, you're ambitious. That's beautiful, but let me go ahead and tell you that that's gonna come with problems. Some of you say, well, I wanna be in the ministry, man. I wanna preach, I wanna be an evangelist, I wanna go and mess somebody else's church up and then leave and go to another city, right? <laughs> <clears throat> But I want you to understand that the ministry comes with problems. See, you see this part of what I do, but you don't see the other part of what I do. And Pastor Brett can amen this. A huge part of what we do is deal with problems and work peace among the people. <laughs> Are y'all quiet now? I must be getting convicted. I don't know. Like, is he talking about me? Yeah, probably. Um, but your problems, your, your promises come with problems. You get it? I want to just challenge you really fast, and then we're going to move on, to think like a farmer when it comes to the promise. Look at your neighbor and say, think like a farmer. <clears throat> you know, in Western Christianity, we want instant gratification. We want results yesterday. But the reality is, if you look at the New Testament, it constantly makes agricultural references about planting, cultivating, nurturing, watering, growing, developing, because... Your spiritual life is something that must be cultivated. It takes time. Fruitfulness does not happen overnight. A farmer does not plant a crop and then go out in three hours and say, I'm ready to eat now. He understands from the beginning that there's going to be opposition. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be time of waiting. And also there are going to be storms that come. But the reality is, is that in order for that harvest to mature and bear fruit, it can't just be sunshine all the time. You need some storms. You need some rain. You need some thunder and lightning. You need some water, some storms to be fruitful in your life. And it is the storms of life that also make you fruitful. Does anybody believe what I'm saying today? You believe the word of the Lord? <clears throat> now, I'm not going to preach forever today, so don't get nervous, but I'm going to go ahead and give you the main takeaway of Leviticus 14. And right here it is. Do you, I want to talk to you. Do you really know? Let's talk for a minute. Do you know why God really allowed the plague in the house in the promised land? Like God was not being cruel. He was not being evil. Like why did God allow the plague in the dwelling place in the promise? You know why? Because the people had become so enamored with the thought of the promised land that it had usurped God's rightful place in their life. And God wanted the Israelites to understand, yes, that's your promise, but it's not your ultimate promise. 
Your ultimate and greatest promise is not a land with milk and honey, but it is the I am, and I am with you now, forever and always. The reason God allowed the plague in the land is so that the people would wake up and understand their greatest reward and their ultimate prize had been with them all along, and it is a relationship with the living God. I wonder this morning, is he your prize? Is he your reward? Or are you still living for the material things of the world? Are you still fixated on your promise, your future, your ministry, your business, your life? Because if so, let me remind you, it's going to come with problems. It's going to come with plagues. And that's on purpose to remind you that you've got a promise even higher, one far superior. And it is a relationship with your creator, God Almighty. Heaven is not the goal. Heaven is just the aftermath of a relationship with God Almighty. He is the reward. He is our prize. Christian, be careful that you don't just live to get out of hell. Because if that's your goal, really you're using God like another consumeristic product to preserve self. And may God have mercy. May you see a greater, deeper, wider revelation of your creator and may you love him. Loving him, prioritizing him, heaven is just, it's just the cherry on top. And let me also remind you that what the Lord was really saying to, to Moses and Aaron right here is he was telling them to tell the people that the greatest thing they'll ever possess in the promise has been with them all along and is with them right now. The greatest thing heaven will ever afford you is already yours right now. The presence of the most high God. Exodus chapter 33, verse 15. Moses realized this. Look at this. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, then don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably upon me on me and your people, if you don't go with us. For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on earth. Church, please lean into this text. Moses had a deep understanding of who God was. And he said, and here's the background, just really fast. The Lord told Moses, hey, I'm gonna give you the promised land because I'm faithful, even when you're unfaithful. I'm gonna give you everything I promised, but I'm not going with you because y'all are a bunch of heathens and idolaters. Okay, I'm summarizing the Exodus real fast. <clears throat> so the Lord said, you can have it, but you can't have me too. And Moses protested and he said, Lord, I will not move from this wilderness unless your presence goes with me. He understood that the presence of God could make even that barren wilderness a paradise. There could be peace, joy, and hope unspeakable in the presence of the living God. And Moses said, I'd rather die in the wilderness with you than inherit the promise of this earth without you. I pray that that would be our heart this morning. Lord, I'll give up the world. Just give me Jesus. I want to be where you are. Because the promises of this life are empty without his presence. What's a marriage without God in it? What's raising children without God at the center? What's a ministry without a relationship with Christ? What is life apart from your creator? 
by the way, the Israelites, they were famous for always wanting to be somewhere else other than where they were. Remember in Egypt, they wanted to be free. Oh, if I could just be free. The moment they got free, not, they hadn't even been out there for long. And they were like, you know what? I'm tired of eating this manna. And what are, let's go on back to Egypt. At least we got some fish and onions out there. <laughs> and then they're in the tent and they say, oh man, I hate this tent. I want to go live in a permanent place in, in the promised land. Then they get to the promised land and they realize there's giants there and they go, oh, oh no, no. Let's just go back to the wilderness. They were never content anywhere because they were resting on a place, an environment, a change of scenery to provide them the peace they were looking for. But the reality is a change of scenery, an upgraded apartment, a different roommate, a new lifestyle, a change of scenery is not what God's after. God wants to change you. And until you're content with him, you'll never be content anywhere you are. The apostle Paul said, I've learned to be content with nothing and with everything. How? Because he recognized that God is enough. And church, listen, I know it's cliche for me to come up here and say on a Sunday, God's enough. Especially when you're going through financial trouble, especially when you're going through difficulty in your life. But I wanna remind you, it is a true statement because when you think and look from an eternal perspective, he really is enough. He is Jehovah Jireh, God, your provider. And again, I'll say it, if he allowed it, good will come from it. And if you don't see good yet, he's not finished. <clears throat> By the way, the enemy never wants you to be fully present where you are. That's what he did to the Israelites. He was always getting them fixated on the promise. Oh, think about that dwelling. Or, oh, think about Egypt. You know, it wasn't all that bad. You had fish and onions. You know, he's, the devil is always trying to do one of two things with you to rob you of the present. He doesn't want you to be fully aware where you are. He doesn't want you to be fully engaged with this sermon right now. He wants you to be thinking about uh, where you're going to lunch, at, you know, Golden Corral, whatever you're going to eat. He wants you, <laughs> don't go there. Anyway, <clears throat> <clears throat> Hey, true story real fast. My wife and I, our first date was at Golden Cow. And the first time I told that, the church thought I said Golden Corral. And they were like, Tyson took Christina to Golden Corral on their first date. I did not. It was Golden Cow. Okay, sorry. We're sidetracked. Anyway, <laughs> I normally don't mess with y'all at 10 o'clock because we got a time. Um, <clears throat> the, the enemy does not want you to be in the present, Ever. He wants you to be so fixated on the future that you miss the moment. And if he can't tempt you with the future, he'll remind you of the past. He'll weigh you down with guilt and shame. He never wants you to be in the moment because you know what? In the moment is where God is. God is the I am. He wants to speak to you right now. He wants to move in your life right now. He wants to use you around the people you're with right now. God is the God of the present. <clears throat> Not gonna preach much longer, but the scripture says in Leviticus 14 that the priest examines the house. Look at your neighbor and say, the priest examines the house. <clears throat> Only the priest could declare a person clean or unclean. Only the priest could do it. And this is a typology. This is a picture that the priest would go into the leper's community, into the house, and he would explore room to room looking for the plague. 
in this typology, Christ is the priest and the dwelling place, the home is your heart and your life. Scripture is showing you that God Almighty is coming to your life. He's looking through your heart, through your mind, through your thought life. He's coming to you. And what will the priest find when he shows up at your door and your life? And yes, Christian, I'm talking to you. I know you may have let him in the front door, but are there areas, are there crevices, are there aspects of your thought life and your, in your behavior that you are keeping Christ away from? Is it an affair? Is it a porn addiction? Is it a drug abuse? Is it alcohol abuse? What is it that is in your life that you are keeping God out of? But the scripture wants you to know that you cannot allow the plague to exist and lie dormant in the hidden places of your heart and life. It is dangerous. It is toxic. It leads to death. We must deal with it immediately. Do not, do not pacify or justify the secret sins in your life. The priest who finds it does not immediately condemn the house. No, first, he says, let's get that stone out. Give me that place of your life that you've resisted and I will deal with it and I'll replace it with something new and something better. I need you to hear me this morning. New Testament Christianity calls you to holiness. Like, like y'all are shocked to hear that because I know nobody in America preaches it today because they don't want to offend you. They want you to be happy and like them and keep giving. Well, I love you, hope you like this church, but if I thank you, to God be the glory, and at least you heard the truth while you were here. <clears throat> hear me, hear me, hear me. You are not saved by your perfection, obedience, or goodness. But someone who has truly been born again, transformed, you don't want to love and live in your sin anymore. There's something inside of you that hates that sin. You love what he loves. You despise what he despises. You don't make accommodation for the plague because it's toxic. And you think that it's just affecting you, but you would be wrong because the plague is being inhaled and absorbed by every person in the house. And the sins you don't deal with, your children will face. You don't believe that? Ask David, who wrote the book of Psalms. He never conquered the sin of lust. He never fully gave it over to the Lord and the lust conquered his children. I could go deeper into that if you want. We don't have time today. <laughs> Scripture is placing an urgency on us relinquishing the dark, hidden sins of our heart to God. Deal with them today. Immediately give them to Christ. Be careful what you allow into your heart. Be careful what you allow into your life. Be careful what you listen to. I know some of you are thinking I'm legalistic right now, but I want you to hear me. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. The, the songs that you're listening to, they can sing about anything in the world they want to. Instead, they choose lust, pride, greed, and selfish ambition. They inundate you, swallow you alive with this garbage filth. And you think it doesn't affect you until you start having lustful thoughts, angry thoughts. You can't control your temper. It's all connected. Be careful what you're watching on the Netflix. Netflix and chill, just take it and dropkick the thing. Nothing good on there anyway. <clears throat> No amens, but you're welcome. <laughs> Don't tolerate 
the plague that is slowly killing you. The plague is a picture of sin. Leprosy in scripture has always been a picture of sin. Leprosy is an insidious disease. At the time, it was incurable. It was a death sentence to those who breathed it in, who took it in. It created numbness in the life of its victims. And they were labeled unclean, separated, isolated from society in the tabernacle and the worship of God. It was a slow but certain death. It is the same picture of sin. You cannot see sin, but here's its effect on your life spiritually. It is killing you slowly without mercy. It is a death sentence that is numbing you spiritually to the things of God and the word of God. You don't love God. You don't worship him. You don't praise him like you used to because you've, en you've enabled these things to live in your life and it has numbed you to the power of his spirit. There is no way of curing this disease on your own. No amount of good deeds, philanthropy, or church attendance can set you free. Only Christ can set you free. And be careful because sin will separate you from God and his people. Not because God runs from you, but because you run from him. <clears throat> Last but not least, I want to show you the gospel in Luke, or excuse me, in Leviticus 14. Leviticus 14, 49. And he shall take to cleanse the house two birds, cedar wood, scarlet, and hyssop. And then he shall kill one of the birds in an earthen vessel over running water. And he shall take the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the scarlet, and the living bird, and dip them in the blood of the slain bird and in the running water, sprinkle it over the house seven times. And he shall cleanse the house with the blood of the bird and the running water and the living bird with the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet. Verse 53, and then he shall let the living bird loose outside of the city in an open field to make atonement for the house and it shall be clean. In closing today, that seems like an obscure text, but I want you to see that it is the gospel right here in Leviticus chapter 14. It says that there are two birds. One had to die so that the other could live. The bird that lived was dipped in the blood of the bird that was slain. And then it was taken to a field and set free. What were the elements used? Wood, hyssop, and red scarlet. All of these elements were present at Calvary's cross. This is a picture pointing forward to the cross of Calvary saying, that Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became our sin, that you and I might be called the righteousness of God. And through his death, covered in his blood, we are cleansed from iniquity. We are cleansed from sin, and we are set free by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, click that subscribe button, share this podcast on social, or even take a screenshot from your story and tag us. We'd love to hear how the Lord is using this podcast to bless your life. You can send an email to info at visionchurch.com or you can DM us on social with a story of how God is moving in your world. Also, we'd like to thank those who invest in our ministry financially. It's because of your sacrifice that we are able to publish this every week. If you'd like to join in giving to our ministry, you can click the link in the description or visit visionchurch.com and click the Give tab. Thanks again for listening. God bless.